want to welcome everyone to Sound Engagement. We have um, an episode lined up that we are excited uh, to introduce to you. Uh, the Danger of Coddling the Mind is what we titled this. I know maybe we'll have a chance for uh, Greg to clarify some of his hesitation <laughs> with that language. The idea of coddling. <laughs> Anyways, but um, yeah, I'll just turn it over to Peter and let Peter introduce um, our guest. We have a very exciting guest uh, lined up for you today, everyone. Uh, Greg Luke Yanoff, I think I pronounced that right, is Woo! a First Amendment. Yeah, I did it. Is a First <laughs> Amendment lawyer. Uh, since 2001, he's been fighting for academic freedom, freedom of speech on campus as the head of Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, or FIRE for short. It's a nonpartisan, uh, nonprofit organization. You can look them up online, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about that. And he, uh, FIRE is dedicated to defending liberty, freedom of speech, due process. Some of the stuff that we'll be getting into today. Hopefully, we'll also uh, talk a little bit about therapy today as well. And he's also passionate about academic freedom, on uh, especially on colleges, uh, college campuses. Yeah, we're very yeah. excited. Yeah. Thanks for and, having me. <laughs> yes, and and just to uh, clarify as well, I'll probably uh, we'll bounce back and forth when you're talking to just zoom in on on your screen, and then we'll go back to the the three three of us. So don't be caught off guard. We're not disappearing. We're just we're just off screen. <laughs> so it's always um, a little unnerving to like see yourself. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so for be ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I know I know probably most of our listeners and uh, those who are uh, following Sound Engagement um, would be familiar with you through your book that you co-wrote with Jonathan Haidt. Uh, the coddling of the American mind, and and so I thought a, a good structure for this discussion would be to just simply look at those three great untruths that you unpack in the book, really in the the front part of the book, but that sort of explains some of why we are at our current cultural moment, and um, and just break our questions down into those three great untruths, and and so um, the first one we we come to is is the the untruth of fragility mm -hmm. uh what doesn't kill you makes you weaker and so i don't know if uh peter you want to ask a, kind of the first question on yeah on yeah well we always did too so i'm a therapist i'll tell you a little bit about ourselves too i mean i don't know if we really got to introduce ourselves but um i i own a practice here in boston right outside boston and mm -hmm. brad is a pastor and we came together we wanted to come at it from a therapeutic perspective and then a spiritual perspective and um you know as a, as a natural Therapist, I love to hear people's stories rather than just jumping right into information. So um, I would love to hear a little bit about your story and spoken a lot about your own journey with uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT for short, how it's helped with depression. And um, I'd love to just, you know, tell us a little bit about how that has helped you advocate, how that relates to free speech. And um, I know sometimes when I'm, deal when I'm with clients, they have this impression that if they're uh, depressed that they have to almost like avoid speech or avoid things mm -hmm. that are, uh, you know, uh, that's going to maybe hurt their feelings or something. So uh, talk to us a little bit about your, your journey and how that, how you came to. Yeah. Well, sure. I'm happy to. Um, so I, uh, you know, I went to law school specifically to be a first amendment lawyer. Um, this was my passion, you know, uh, for, since I was young. Um, it's partially because I grew up in an environment. I'm actually from Danbury, Connecticut, but I grew up in a, in a neighborhood where they, a lot of the other kids were either first generation. Like I am my, my father's Russian and my mother's British. My dad actually grew up in Yugoslavia. Um, and 
you know, there, and it was from you know, sort of all over the world. It was Vietnam and Korea and Peru and Port, uh, uh, Puerto Rico. And some, some of the other white kids were actually from the American South, which was just as foreign to me <laughs> as, as, uh, as anywhere else. Um, and it was uh, interesting because like in that environment what, where, where you didn't know what all the landmines were, you know, what, what, because every culture has very, tends to have very specific ideas of what you shouldn't say. Um, it had to, and my mother was British, so I had a ton of things we weren't supposed to say. Um, the, uh, the the only thing we could kind of agree on was, you know, give people the benefit of the doubt, hear them out, try to figure out where they're actually coming from. And that set me up right away to be kind of a pro-free speech person. Um, also, you know, my family has a long history of opposing totalitarianism. My, my great-great-grandfather was a serf, you know, and we had to leave because we want, we like Kerensky and the Bolshevik Revolution. It's all, it, you know, so it, it's a long history of it. So I went to law school specific, specifically to do First Amendment law. I worked at the uh, ACLU while I was there. I, I wrote, um, I did six credits on uh, censorship during the Tudor dynasty. You know, like this was my lifelong passion. And when FIRE was first formed in 1999, um, it was actually about a year and a half into it, they needed a legal director. So they came out and they found, found me, which is one of the great compliments of my whole life. But even from the very start in 2001, um, I was shocked at how easy it was to get in trouble for what you said on a college campus, um, mm -hmm. even back then. And this was exhausting, frankly. Like um, being in the middle of the culture war uh, all the time was exhausting because your, you know, your liberal friends would hate you for one case. You, um, I didn't have all that many conservative friends, but conservatives would be angry at you for another case. Uh, people tend not to, to be horribly inconsistent about this stuff, but really, really angry and moralistic about it. And when I became president in 2006, um, it was after a while it was just too much. Um, I be uh, I got really, really, really depressed. I got suicidally depressed um and i was admitted to i had myself to to a hospital in um in philadelphia uh in in 2007 um and i i, I thought i was never going to be okay again and mm -hmm. after getting through yeah. the really intense period the thing that helped me out was cognitive behavioral therapy um and that's how i started to have these started recognizing all of these um sort of intersections between cog uh, what you learn in cbt and kind of the opposite CBT that I felt like we were teaching to some degree on campus, uh, and that's ultimately what led uh, led to the led to the original article in the book. Hmm. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, for some of our listeners too, I mean, you know, cognitive. I don't know if you wanted to summarize real quickly sure, what, what cognitive behavioral therapy and how it helped you in particular. I know it's you know thoughts, beliefs, and actions. And yeah, tell us how that. Yeah, CBT is yeah. really quite remarkable, and I think it's actually as appreciated as is. <clears throat> I think it's kind of underappreciated. Um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, when you study philosophy, there's a lot of optimism about what rational thought can do for you, whether it's, you know, platonic tradition or religious tradition. There, there is this idea that, you know, um, truth will set you free. Um, but it has no better sort of codification than in things like cognitive behavioral therapy and um, uh, ACT, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, for example. And all it is really is getting to catch yourself in a thought, um, writing the thought down, uh, and then interrogating it, not, not, from a, not from a power of positive thinking point of view, but just from a rational point of view. And the kind of thoughts you're trying to catch are the ones that make you really anxious or angry or sad. And these tend to be what are called cognitive distortions. So I always give the example of, you know, say you go on a date uh, and, and you're, you know, you get, you get home and it went really badly and you're just telling yourself, I'm going to die alone. 
And what you do, you know, when you're uh, doing CBT is you write that down. And the amazing thing is, you know, particularly when you're really depressed, that sounds entirely true. That sounds 100% true. I am going to die alone is, the, uh, is what's happening here. But then you, it asks you to examine it um, from the point of view of is, is this a cognitive distortion? And distortions include things like overgeneralizations, mind reading, are you uh, uh, knowing the future? All of these things that are rationally speaking, um, they're, they're, if you're, everybody does them, but, um, it, it, but if you're doing them, you should be able to talk, talk your brain down. And eventually by the end of it, when you, when you analyze it that way, you might write a more realistic sentence, which is like, this date went badly and I feel sad about that, which is mm -hmm. bad but it's not as bad as your life is going to end and it doesn't re uh, require fortune telling or mind reading for all you know actually might not have gone nearly as badly as you thought it could also have gone worse than you thought of course, <laughs> of course but you know right, right. That's, that's another story um and so and and the thing that i really wanted to stress and i think we probably didn't stress it quite enough in the book for my taste is that height really likes to point to this as this being very this very simple approach and he's right it it is a simple approach but it has to be a habit if you don't actually make yourself do it regularly and you don't get your brain in the habit of doing it, um, it doesn't matter if you know this intellectually. It doesn't help you to know this intellectually. At least it doesn't help you much to know it intellectually. Um, and what was amazing was I would get, you know, some version of depression at least once a year um, for most of my life. Um, and it was getting increasingly intense getting up to 2007. Um, I don't really get them anymore like like the, the i i've i've trained when uh these horrible voices you know pop out of my head and they say these horrible things about you know like people have schema and internal ideas about themselves that run very deep and for people who you know grew up with histories kind of like i did you might have something like you're broken fundamentally and mm -hmm. i could hear that when i was younger um and it would it sounded like the gospel truth and now i hear it and i'm kind of like that doesn't sound right yeah, and that's mm -hmm. just out of practicing a cognitive habit. So it, it's one of the most investigated and researched. I think it is the most investigated intervention for anxiety and depression. Um, and the fact that it, it works at all to me is really quite remarkable because it's just using your prefrontal cortex to try to talk back to the rest of your brain. Um, but I think it has even more profound implications for how we argue with ourselves, how we argue with each other and what a good argument looks like. So it has wow. implications for free speech. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can see that too, especially when it comes to cognitive dissonance. I mean, the, I always tell my clients, um, when I'm, I do a little bit of CBT myself, like the ABC model, the activating event and the belief and the consequence, but how, whatever you believe about the activating event is going to drastically, uh, affect your consequences, you know? And, um, and so there's a cognitive dissonance that's really going on, especially because they tell you to explore, they tell you to be curious on campus. They tell you, to um, especially, you know, if you're a professor and yet if you provoke somebody and cause a microaggression, you could very well get fired. That's a serious cognitive dissonance. It's like, mm -hmm. well, you can, you know, we love you, sweetie, but we may get rid of you if uh, if you if you take too many cookies and you're like, uh, I'm not sure if I, my parents really love me. <laughs> so, well, and, and, and Peter, on, on that point, <laughs> yeah. just to interject something that, that mm -hmm. um, uh, I've I've seen over the years is that a, one of and one of the advantages I have for, from a free speech perspective is having this kind of cross cultural experience. And mm -hmm. and, and Russians, you know, ha have a very sort of like bull in a china shop kind of way of talking. Like the politeness <laughs> is stupid. You know, like it's a form of deception. You know, like yeah. they, and they like uh, not. Uh, 
I shouldn't overgeneralize, but a lot of them at least like the sort of brutally honest that you have to be tough enough to be able to handle the truth kind of idea, which is the exact opposite of what the Brits, uh, at least my people like my mm -hmm. mom think. Um, and but one thing that is underappreciated is that people who are on the spectrum who are, aren't that, uh, who, who have issues with social cues, for example, um, they get in trouble a lot because they mm. don't know. So if you're international, you don't want to know what the landmines are. You don't know, you don't know what the microaggression might be, for example. If you're on the spectrum, you might not know what it is. Or if like me, you came from a different economic class, you're kind of like, really? Like we, we this yeah. is the way we talk at, at, at Harvard, for example, like close to you. Um, and it's interesting that there is sometimes an assumption in these places that are supposed to be very sophisticated and very international and very multicultural, that there's a pretty limited range of acceptable opinion. Uh, and it, it, it's much more rigid than um, I think it was 20 years ago, for example. Mm. Yeah. Would, would you say um, the that CBT is sort of a, um, a solution for all three of these great untruths? Or is it sort of, I, I know we're kind of getting into the untruth of emotional reasoning, oh. the idea of trusting your feelings, right? Because that's where you talked about it in the book. Yeah. Uh, or would you say that CBT is just something that applies to all of these untruths in some degree? That's a great question. And I believe it applies to all of these uh, untruths to some degree. Um, okay. So, for example, the first great untruth, of course, is what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Um, that's, you know, that's catastrophizing, um, which it. is a cognitive distortion. Um, that's uh, fortune telling, you know, um, which it. is... Uh, you know, cognitive distortion. Uh, yeah. Now, the second one is all about, and the, the the second untruth, which is your feelings are always right, is the one that right. sounds the nicest and and sounds the most appealing, particularly to Americans. You know, kind of like, well, follow your heart. Um, and it, you know, it's one of those things where you say, I, yeah. I, I hate to break it to you, but mm -hmm. actually, a lot of becoming mature, a lot of becoming a functional adult is learning to not always follow your feelings and to talk yourself right. down and control your impulses. But when it comes to life is a battle between good people and evil people, um, the third great untruth, which is more mm -hmm. of the social untruth, that's mm -hmm. overgeneralizing. Um, that's also catastrophizing. Mm -hmm. That's also, oh, actually, most importantly, um, this is the one that I still suffer from the most that my wife makes fun of me for, because as much as I know about this intellectually, I still very much tend to be a binary thinker. Um, mm -hmm. which, which is like, um, you know, can I eat the, can I eat the, the leftovers in the fridge or not? And it's like, well, no, you can eat half of them. And it's right. like, <laughs> can I eat the, <laughs> you know, like right. it's either, it's either zero or one. And I, and, and I don't mean to think that way, but that's probably the one that I have the hardest time overcoming. And the idea of course, that people are evil are, are either, uh, good or evil, um, mm -hmm. is generally not true um the people are much generally much more uh, complex and nuanced than that and actually yeah. someone who can be quite awful one day could be quite lovely the next year or decade or moment mm -hmm. mm. that's good i did one follow-up on on the first um great untruth is just as soon as i was reading this book i actually read it after i had read um white fragility by mm. robin d'angelo and i know your book came out before it so and and it almost set a bit of a probably became something of a catchphrase or a, a term that just became popularized. I think even Obama used it in a speech mm -hmm. or something like that, talked about coddling. And so I I, I, yeah. I couldn't help but make the connection between mm -hmm. white fragility and and your your book. And, and, you know, she, in fact, there's a quote um, in the book where she says these guidelines, she's talking about guidelines for building trust in a community. Uh, these guidelines are primarily driven by white fragility mm -hmm. and they're accommodations made to coddle 
white fragility. So, I mean, maybe she didn't recognize what she was doing, but it seemed like it was a borrowing. It, is that, I'm not, could you I'm not sure. That? I'm not sure if she recognized a lot of what she was doing. When I, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. what, what I feel like in that, and I see a lot of people feeling like they're sticking it to me in height by being kind of like, well, who, well who's really coddled in society? Right, and it's right. like, I don't like the title. I've never liked the title. Um, and, okay. and and we were able to accept the title. Um, well, actually, we were kind of forced to. Uh, we were basically told <laughs> by distributors that our boring title would not do. Um, and, it, <laughs> and it was like, wow, it was it was made it was like very very clear because I wanted to get I wanted to call it disempowered because mm -hmm. I don't know, what what I want to say is like it, it, what I, it shows more of what I actually feel about right. kids who are being taught this way, which is essentially mm -hmm. you've got this brilliant and some, you know, particularly for, for, for these kids who are going to these, these, these this is the classism, they re, might be called reverse classism, these fancy schools. The, the kids who are going to the, these elite colleges, you know, like they're amazing kids in in, in most cases. They're, they're, they're exceptionally mm -hmm. bright. They're really motivated. All they have, they have all these remarkable qualities, but they're being disempowered by a, a series of beliefs that make them feel less competent less autonomous, less independent, less, all, all, all of these things. And, and it does actually, rather than I feel dismissive and hostile towards it, it kind of actually, to be honest, it breaks my heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I do adjunct work over here at Endicott college. I mean, it's Endicott does a pretty good job because um, they, they, um, they actually tell the kids that you have to do an internship by your oh, sophomore cool. year. That's and helpful. I've, I've, I've done a little bit of teaching over at other colleges in the universe um, in where I'm at. And I have to admit um, it's a vast difference just mm -hmm. uh, telling them to go out in the real world. So I've got students uh, that have already, you know, um, interacted with highly psychotic patients. I, I liked what you said about the people on the spectrum. I worked with a lot of kids on the spectrum and I, whenever I teach psych or um, theories of counseling, I say to a lot of the people, I say, you better have some tough skin because when you meet with an Asperger or autistic client, yeah. they're going to point out the, no, the nose hair that's coming out of your, you know, <laughs> out yeah. your nose. One, I remember one kid, he looked at me, he was like, why do you smell bad? Like, why what, did you not shower? Are you not prepared? And I noticed that there's a little, you know, food in your teeth. I mean, are what, what, what are, what are we to you? That's exactly what he said. And I forgot to shower after my workout. I'm like, okay, I'm, this whole meeting, I just kind of picked with him right back. And then he kind of smiled and then we actually had a good relationship. So you have to have this yeah. interaction with those kids on the spectrum. But um, yeah, no, that's, uh, it, it's, it's interesting. I, I wanted to ask you too, just, I mean, what if you noticed, I, I actually, inter not interviewed, but I, I, I became a real big fan of, of your all's work. I, I, first met Jonathan Haidt over at a conference at the APA conference in Denver, Colorado in 2016. And I spoke to him afterwards. I think I was the only one in the whole um, auditorium that stood up and clapped for him because <laughs> <laughs> what he spoke on was the need to um, really just uh, disqualifying the positive, the problem with disqualifying the positive. Acknowledging Which is a cognitive distortion. Yeah, right. And the, it, just acknowledging the good, appearing to be objective, but believing the good has no value, in other words. Mm -hmm. And he spoke on, you know, he a broad example of national review came up to him and I said, thank you so much. I'd never heard anything like that being a therapist in primary, very liberal area. I'm probably the only center right conservative person that I know out of hell. <laughs> so wherever I go, I don't, I'm, I feel like a gay man in the, in the 1980s living in Mississippi, <laughs> you know, a little, it's a really out of place. So I just thanked him so much, but what I was, I, I think, what I was really concerned when I um, sent him an email a little bit a while ago, he just said, you know, it's, it's been really tough, uh, yeah. very, very hard. Um, very concerned about what's going on. So um, what's, what's, what are, 
uh, like what are what are some things that you're seeing like right now and curious on, on how they progress or regressed? I, oh I, my I, goodness! Since coddling, since the summer, since COVID, since a lot of the riots, since the election. I mean, what are your yeah? Where do that. I begin? Right. Um, <laughs> my goodness! I mean, the you know I, when we wrote this in 2015, I was pretty concerned, you know, about about the trends. I thought they were. Um, I thought the the attitudes we were cultivating on campus were not healthy ones for a pluralistic democracy. Um, and I think I also thought they were not healthy ones for individual health. Um, and then we, when it came out in 2018, um, you know, we'd watch the we'd watch Trump get elected, which, of course, blew us all away. We, we, you know, we didn't um, we didn't really see that coming. And then, of course, the response to it on campus, which included um, a very large, violent you know, protest in at Berkeley, which we talk about at length in the book, partially because it was much worse than than we thought um, when we first looked into it. Um, and then, but this year, good lord! I mean, the um, you know, COVID. Of course, it, it at first there was there was this little glimmer at the beginning of COVID. If you were on social media, that there was this hunger to just talk to people. You know, like, and it seemed like there might be some kind of positive personal connection coming out of it. Um, I do, you know, I, I, I run a nonpartisan shop. I'm a Democrat. Um, I try to keep some of my opinions about Trump to myself. Um, but uh, I mean, we're, we're take, not going to be offended. <laughs> well, you know, but it's, par it's partially because I want to I want people to be secure that I will defend everybody, you know, like like it, it, that's my societal role. Um, but to uh, use my, my British mother's uh, euphemistic way of talking, um, it was somewhat surprising that a national challenge um, was actually be, was actually transformed into an us versus them situation. Um, it, it, it was a, a potentially an opportunity for us to face a, a collective challenge together, and instead it became fake news versus anti-maskers versus you're trying to get me unelected. And I and here and here's the, here's the thing that you probably need to know about where I'm talking to you from. I'm on Capitol Hill. I live on Capitol Hill. I have a three and a five-year-old, and I live on Capitol Hill. And oh, jeez, <laughs> sorry. Um, this is uh, the, the, my, my building is trying to save electricity, but it can't. It, it doesn't know I'm here, so it keeps on shutting off the lights. Um, I live on Capitol Hill, and that that was one of the you know we, we were uh, we, you know we were tr we we got out of town for some of those you know the smaller riots that we had in D.C. Of course, saying smaller riots just seems kind of crazy, but then we have the the January sixth thing happen. So it's like everything everything's gone. The the tension this year has just gone beyond a boiling point, and then of mm. course you had the the killing of George Floyd, absolutely horrifying, um, and what was particularly shocking to me was when this was uh when this was you know when everybody was watching this i was hopeful that there were you know some pretty straightforward reforms that we that we were finally united to take because there are things that you could do um, that would help this not to happen again. Like everything from addressing qualified immunity, if not entirely getting rid of it, uh, body cams, um, police unions, you know, trying to address how much power they have, uh, no knock raids. Like there, there are very specific democratic things we could have done, you know, uh, and instead what I saw happen on campus was a huge explosion in students and administrators and faculty taking this as an opportunity to go after students or professors who had said things that were uh, uh, that they didn't like. And it was really hot ide ideologically. So just to get, give you some perspective, in June, we usually get around 50 case submissions. Um, at, I'm talking about here FIRE. We help students and faculty on campus. Uh, people submit things through our website. We usually get around 1,000 case submissions a year. Uh, this year, that should have been a quiet year because most campuses were shut down, at least to some degree. We got 1,500. 
we got 300 wow. case submissions in June. And, and, and it wasn't just that we got more of them. They were much more hot ideological. We, we, one thing that people need to know is that we get a lot of cases where it's just someone getting in trouble because they angered the wrong person in the administration by what they said. We get plenty of apolitical mm -hmm. cases. We get plenty of cases of people on the left getting in trouble, which we happily defend. Um, but this was definitely, I am going after that that uh, that bombastic, I'll give one one example that still kind of weighs on me. Uh, there is a right-wing professor uh, who I've been defending since my, pretty much my first day at FIRE and named Mike Adams at University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Um, he, oh, yeah. uh, he, that he, case. yeah, yeah. yeah. He, yeah. He, attribu he attributed to me um, mm -hmm. The fact that he decided to be more bombastic because I introduced him to the work of Lenny Bruce back in 2001 because I was reading it, Lenny Bruce's great biography, How to Talk Dirty and Influence People. So he always attributed to me his in-your-face kind of conservative, kind of jokey, irreverent style. Um, and I was always like, oh, God, I've created a monster with this guy. But I also knew him as a guy. And he, you know, when he turned off kind of like the culture warrior thing, he could be a very sweet man. Um, but he turned it back on and he was trying to provoke you. It was kind of the whole point. Uh, and he got, he finally, you know, crossed, he, he it wasn't so much he crossed the line. He said things actually probably, you know, just as offensive as he ever said on, on, on Twitter. But during, uh, right around this time, and that led to a move to get him uh, to get him kicked off campus. Um, he took a took a retirement deal, and I was checking out on him uh, in, in mid July because I thought I, I was under the misimpression that this was um, you know kind of he was a kind of okay with this, and he didn't sound good at all. And he killed himself the next week. Um, so it was a very intense uh, peer, moralistic period, unlike I've ever seen. So this year has been exhausting on every possible level. I should also tell our listeners too, I'm very, I'm from North Carolina originally and Mike Adams, I, um, I didn't know him, but I read that case really thoroughly. And even though he was pretty conservative, I'm pretty sure he got rave reviews for student from students across the board for like 25 years. He was one of the most popular, uh, it was funny. Professors. I mean, yeah, I, I, th yeah, he was, I, I've heard anyway, that, that was a terrible case. Mm. I mean, I can't. Yeah. And uh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, I'm, this might be shifting gears a little bit, but um, I I also was thinking as I was reading the book um, this idea of of safetyism and and how it played a role in in leading us to our response to the pandemic. And I know that's not obviously that wasn't on your radar and it wasn't mm -hmm. the point of the of the phrase, but it but it feels like we were sort of set up for this extreme reaction and a readiness to lock everything down regardless mm -hmm. of the consequences almost to disregard the the mental health issue you know i mean i know it, it's become a bit of a red blue issue but but just as do you see some recognition of that so safetyism, just for the listeners, is is this idea that you turn that we've um, in the past twenty years, particularly parenting, has turned safety into sort of a sacred value, which basically means mm -hmm. it's of infinite value, and there um, and any any even incremental in increase in safety is worth an infinite amount, um, and right. that's. Uh, that's basically because we don't have sort of a counter. We didn't have a countervailing like maybe there are actually a good side to challenging your kids or for them to be exposed to some social uh, you know, social friction, for example. Um, when it came to the pandemic, though, I'm definitely you know, I'm a constitutional lawyer. 
And the absolute definition of the situation in which the government is allowed to do things they would never be allowed to under other circumstances is a pandemic. Um, so mm. the rules really do change. And, and, and safetyism is ultimately, it includes at least part of a judgment call, essentially, if you think it's excessive. When we were first handling this, I think, um, I, I think when we didn't really know uh, like what was spreading this? I, I I think that it was perfectly reasonable for us to have a moment yeah. of being like you know like shut everything down. Um, when I hear things like uh, I think Jen Psaki said today something to the effect of even vaccinated people you know uh, still have to wear masks. It's kind of like okay that's safetyism. Like, like mm -hmm. we, we can be quite confident, uh, you know at least reasonably confident that um, uh, that it reduces transmission at least from the science that we actually know. Um, so I do think that, you know, they, there was sort of an excuse for excessive safety. Probably the best excuse you could find would be a disease, particularly that travels in this sneaky way in which you can be an asymptomatic transmitter. It, it completely messes with your mind. And, and I remember hearing this about a year ago in, in January of the previous year being like, uh oh, uh, asymptomatic yeah. spread with incubation period like that's going to spread and suddenly everyone's going to have it. Um, yeah. So it really was like almost a cruel disease. Well, actually, sorry, it is a cruel disease um, sure. that really kind of messes with people's minds. But we see this, we, we see some of the, the safetyism, you know, continue to see it on campus. We also see it exploited um, for completely immoral reasons. You know, like we, we've seen uh, COVID be used to, to for example, um, at NYU this year, one of my, uh, one mm. of the cases that is so classic that I feel like more people need to know about is um, NYU was like, okay, uh, Every doctor who works at NYU, who is a professor here, you have to run, if you're going to talk to the media about COVID, you have to run it through the media flax at NYU. And it's like, no, 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 no. Um, right. Universities try to do this stuff all the time. And the idea of kind of, um, in, you know, uh, infantilizing your own doctors. And it was great to have Nicholas Christakis, you know, be, 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 be the one leading the charge. He's a, pr pr uh, doc a professor and doctor at Yale. Um mm. And he, you know, just saying, like, listen, no, like this, the, the, I know you, I, I know you want to turn this into excuse to have greater control over what we say, but no. <laughs> yeah. What yeah. would you say? I mean, on that, I mean, there is something about a pandemic, too, that brings up the emotion of disgust. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, do you see a correlation there of why? I mean, so I, I do. Gottman therapy. And he says the number one reason why people divorce, for example, is because of contempt, you know, and once you get to the place of contempt, that couple's you sure. know, not too much further until they're kind of done. And I, I mean, do you see some, like when you're dealing with some of these cases, I mean, I, another case I brought up was Jason Kilborn at university of Chicago was, yeah. was thanked for a question on the exam. I mean, I, I would encourage our listeners just to look at all these very minor issues yeah. that people are just, you know, and just, I, I can't imagine just living in fear like that, but is there something that's related to the emotion of disgust? Like I'm fighting for a cause. I have to cancel you because you're, you're, you're risking my, you know, you're, you're harming other people. You're, you know, you're anyway, I didn't know if you wanted to. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Peter, you, you, you've actually um, uh, um, uh, come up uh, upon something that, that I, I, I get really excited about. Pamela Presky was our, our chief, um, researcher during the book and she's a psychologist and we were working on, and we never finished it because, you know, we're so busy. Um, but I want to uh, finish it, uh, which is essentially the, the, um, relationship between the instinct, you know, of the, the, the emotional reaction of disgust and offensiveness, because one of the things that is sort of like the, what is the bedrock principle of first amendment law as a, a, a as, as it's called in, in a, in a case about flag burning 
is that you can't ban something simply because it's offensive. And this is very good uh, psychology on the part of, of, of um, uh, the Supreme Court, on the, on the part of lawyers, because the reason why you can't ban something simply because it's offensive is one, because what's offensive is highly subjective. It does, um, and from year to year, culture to culture, economic class, economic class, it, it, it's different. But also this, the, this understanding that it's linked to this very deeply irrational part of us, which, which is disgust, that, that essentially, and once you're disgusted by something, it activates, you know, tribal switch and rejection and all these, all this kind of suite of emotions um, that can make you very, uh, very hostile to it, which is one of the reasons why you can't have offensiveness be the, the justification for for banning speech. It's it, not only is it too irrational um, it, and too subjective, it's also in some ways too powerful. So I do think there's, I think the res research on disgust and the legal concept of offense um, really should be, there should be more cross-pollination between uh, particularly First Amendment law and psychology. Wow. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, Brad, I, I wanted you to give, yeah, did you want to question? Yeah. yeah, go ahead. I'll ask, yeah, I have a question on, on again, just shifting gears a bit here, but um, something that is obviously really heavy in uh, the media and in the minds of um, just the, the culture, uh, but also even at Clem's close to home for the church is this idea of critical theory and critical mm -hmm. race theory in particular. And, um, and I think if, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to, uh, but I, it felt like there was some pushback at least upon some, most of the, uh, or at least a lot of the ideas like intersectionality mm -hmm. um, sort of a saying we, we've, we've made this much bigger than it, than it is. And we've made it this framework from which we can then interpret everything we see. Right. And, um, and, and yet you also do acknowledge in the summary of the book uh, or in the summary of that chapter that there's merits to oh, the yeah. theory. And so I'd wonder what could you elaborate? Because for me, from my perspective, what I see is anyone who's really getting into this um, CRT, you know, critical race theory or any critical theory, they there tends to be just a lot of tension, a deconstructing of, of everything and, and everything that we've ever done in the past to yeah. say that it's, it's tainted by racism and that we need to, uh, you know, that, that everyone needs to basically repent of, of something that they're complicit in. And I don't want to get into the weeds here, but I do mm -hmm. think from what, from my own understanding of it, it just seems to exacerbate problems and not actually solve anything. So I'd love to hear someone just articulate what are some of the benefits or one of the contributions that intersectionality or, or critical theory have have done that are that could be beneficial in my context? I, I can I can definitely address the um, uh, benefits of intersectionality. I, I frankly okay. get kind of confused around CRT to a degree, okay. and I don't okay. I don't really know who to believe on this, but I'll, I'll get to that second. Okay. Intersectionality, okay. the observation um, that uh, that if you're thinking about um, uh, the problem of being uh, black in the United States and, and racism towards black people, that uh, the problems faced by black men um, are different than those faced by black women, you know, which is part of the uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's kind of original contra right. contribution. That's obviously true. And actually a really useful insight that as you have intersecting identities, um, that that creates new tensions, new problems, also potentially new allies, new new friends, new groups, new 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 communities. Um, and 
it's definitely, you know, an interesting way to look at the world. And if you take it, you know, to its extreme, of course, I think Andrew Sullivan is one of the people who points this out. Um, uh, if you take all of your identities at once, you always end right. up ultimately with an individual. Um, individual but, it is, yeah. but it is true. I, you know, I, I used to live out in San Francisco, uh, the uh, the different kinds of, you know, gay communities, you know, I, I live close to um, Gallaudet and, you know, subgroups within the deaf community, for example, it, it, there is genuine insight in the initial idea of intersectionality. And I just have to stress that because here's okay. the problem. These, when, the, when a lot of these ideas might have some merit to them, get transformed into rhetorical tactics, which is to a large degree how they're used in the real world, um, they become basically ways to win arguments. And I do, and here's and here's why I sound completely unsympathetic, uh, is that a lot of these, a lot, when, when you see these in action, they feel like the way you went, you would win arguments in dormitories in the 1990s, and, and, and or in San Francisco back when I lived there, where essentially if you could if you could claim enough intersected uh, identities, you, you can right. say I have some special knowledge of the world that you don't have. And so it was it was weird. There was a big argument this weekend um, in a nerd community I belong to about whether or not you should joke about Jewish space lasers, which and, and what what this what this comes from is the idea of, um, uh, what's her name? There's a, a congresswoman who wrote something, um, believes in crazy conspiracy theories, including uh, in, including uh, the Newtown shooting, which and I'm from Danbury, for goodness sake. Oh, sakes, right. You know, yes, you know, be, a being, Republican uh, uh, woman. Her, um, oh, gosh, I can't remember. I know who you're talking about. Marlene yeah, Margaret something. Margaret. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. about about there being Rothschild lasers in space, and it, it turned into this. And basically, I just did a defense of dark humor, and I didn't even defend that. But I said, listen, dark humor can be a coping mechanism. And believe mm. me, I, you, you know, you think about stuff that like my family went through. R Russians, you know, we we got right. dark humor, uh, and and it's and it's a way of of getting through tough times. And that's mm. pretty much all I said. And it turned into this pylon. Um, about people saying how, you know, you, uh, you're only allowed to make this joke if you're Jewish. And it's kind of like, uh, and mockery has never done anything for any any movement. And it was like, what do you mean? Like mockery helped right. the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, the, the, the women's rights movement. Like look at the media, look at movies. Um, and then when the argument was done, um, the, the main person I was arguing with, um, her husband, who, who was a, a Latino, um, came in to say, as a POC, I don't think you're being an ally. And I'm like, and I've, I, I swear, I remained calm during this whole thing. I, I, I didn't let myself get angry uh, during this. I'm like, so how you're being Latino, how does that mean that you have special knowledge of whether or not you should be able to joke about space lasers and why are you saying that? <laughs> why, why, why why am i why am i concerned about being an ally it was weird because i i critique yeah. this style of argumentation from the outside a lot i haven't been in right. one in forever because i don't generally but it was this amazing pylon where it was just all of these sort of to be frank cheap tactics um mm -hmm. for, for for winning an argument to sort of pull rank and so a lot of the hostility that you see sometimes for people who aren't very, who aren't totally immersed in this stuff is partially the way it gets used to really be dismissive of people's point of view. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, that's one of my issues with white fragility is yeah. that it, mm -hmm. it's like I'm lecturing you on a topic um, and you're like, do we really have to do this? Ah, you're fragile. It's like, wow. Okay. That's, right. that's another level of what I call the perfect rhetorical fortress. Hmm. Well, and also, I mean, you know, Brad and I are pretty aware of this too. We were doing a, um, uh, a review of cynical theories by James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose, and we we love that book, yeah, very yeah. much. And yeah, we just we just love it. Did you want to say something? To that? Yeah, I, I did. I did. I read it, and yeah, you, I really love Helen. 
Um, uh, James sometimes says things on Twitter that make me kind of wince a little mm -hmm. bit. Yeah. And I, and I don't have any way to know if that's an accurate presentation of what critical theory is. Cause I'm not going to read that stuff. Mm. I mean, like Derrida, Foucault, ugh, I right, mean, it's just right. like, it's not right. worth it. Um, but if it is, you know, like an, an accurate uh, summation of it, it is such a silly idea. Like the, the idea of being like, we, like, somehow we know we knew enough about society to make all of these sweeping conclusions about the role of language and we decided this about in the horrifying years of the of, of the 1950s and 70s you know like when you know mm. like I my dad grew up in, in Yugoslavia in the 30s and it's like you mean heaven as far <laughs> as far as like a lot of people right. from our previous right. era would have thought um if it if it is true it it shows just how shallow a lot a lot of this stuff actually is yeah. I mean, I, I think I'm starting to understand it from a religious perspective. I mean, oh, it's pretty popular um, amongst a lot of churches, you know, who are very what you would call woke Christians who, mm -hmm. I mean, I've I've seen the evangelical church and speci specifically, which is has which is an interesting history because evangelicalism has um, they avoided they they have a history of kind of avoiding, quote, the world. And because of that, they've mm -hmm. like when they got kicked out of Prince, not kicked out, but like B.B. Warfield in the early 1920th century, um, when they left like Harvard and Yale and Princeton, the bastions of Christian thought, they all had to kind of retreat. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, they they kind of basically had this It started. That's where the foundations of fundamentalism started coming. So they weren't mm -hmm. quite as engage in the world when i say world i mean like these philosophies like foucault and all this other stuff so they just kind of had to read secondhand literature mm -hmm. and but the evangelical church i think they see stuff like black lives matter and they see stuff like like how dare you as a white person uh completely invalidate this person of color that's coming to our church because we want to share jesus with them and it becomes this kind of not just um it's an interesting combination of of both like huge amount of compassion, like the, mm -hmm. the Oedipal mother, you know, the overprotectiveness with how dare you um, cause offense to people who are oppressed and righteous rage and, righteous, and this righteous indignation with contempt. And you take all of those motions together, you get this very, very religious kind of what Daniel Kahneman talks about, like when the system two starts telling your system uh -huh. one, like, hey, you're doing right things because I have Jesus on my side. There's no arguing because it's just like the ingrained us versus them mentality. And I'm like, wait, no, I'm reading Thomas Sowell. And this is a black man who's like, was possible, you know, I think he was nominated for the Nobel Prize for Economics. I don't care. You're totally invalidating them. No, but I'm reading like Coleman Hughes is also a black man. I don't care. Or, jo or John McWhorter. I've met, you know, we, I, Oh, him. you know, but none of those people matter. You know, Thomas Sowell is probably, in my opinion, is one of the most brilliant people alive. I mean, yeah. Stephen, you know, and so like, what do you do with that? Like, I, I guess my question is, how do you, do you think there's a correlation between the religious, religious I, people and the us versus them mentality? And, you know, anyway, I do, I, but, uh, but Brad, are you, are you a preacher or rep reverend? Yeah, you're, I'm a pastor. you're a pastor. Have you been seeing CRT popping up too? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Within the, I mean, we have, mm. so it's, it's definitely more subtle within the context of the church. Uh, I think if people said that they were like acknowledged that they were borrowing from CRT, it would, it would quickly be kind of rejected. But I think you're seeing the ideas of like that. I think CRT, um, 
promotes implicit bias or intersectionality or these um, just kind of ideas of uh, institutional um, uh, racism that that is, uh, I guess, it assumed to be in everything, right? And mm-hmm. so every individual automatically has these things. And so uh, it's the assumption of you've got a you've got white privilege. And, and, and a lot of that I think does come from whether they've adopted it from a CR, like a critical theorist or not. It, it, those ideas are infiltrating uh, the church, yeah. even at a level of the leadership, trying to understand how can we address whether or not we should use CRT directly as an analytical tool. Have you heard mm-hmm. like a uh, Southern Baptist convention actually had a, like an overture that addressed that issue. Um, so we're this, starting to see it in our denomination too. This is extremely interesting to me, um, partially yeah. because um, I see, and I've talked to Hyde about this. Um, you know, I asked him at one point, like, do you think uh, this sort of hot moral fervor that you're seeing on campus, is it just kind of analogous to religion or is it really taking the place of religion for some people? Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, no, actually, I think it's kind of taking the place for some people. Um, and yeah. if you look at the sort of like, you know, the, the, this, Peter, as you pointed out, this idea of like, it, it, it gives you the right to feel righteous rage, but also to believe that you're infinitely compassionate, but also to engage in untruth uh, number three, that it's life is a battle between good, evil and pe- evil, uh, good people and evil people. And you're one of the good people um, mm-hmm. and trying to trying to battle this in the world. And that's a very seductive narrative. So I do actually think that what we're seeing are religious instincts taking over um, in a very not necessarily destructive, but not necessarily constructive way um, at a lot mm-hmm. of levels of society. And I do think that the, you know, what's derisively called wokeism is very moralistic, very, very, it, it's a pretty simple view of the world, um, not very, uh, and, of, and a very binary view of the world. And it feels very much, not just like religion, but oftentimes like superstition um, mm-hmm. w- w- when you look at it. But on the other side of it, QAnon, um, the conspiracy right, theories right. on the right. That that absolutely behaves like a religion uh, in, no, in no. all sorts of ways. Like and, and it's um you know it's got the it's got mysteries, it's got obligations, it's got the war of good versus evil, it's got the um it's got some really kind of old fashioned mystery cult aspect to it. So I I do actually think that what we're seeing is the sort of um uh, takeover of sort of some of our deeper religious instincts. Um, mm-hmm. Again, this is embarrassing. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, <I'm> sorry. <laughs> the, the the um I really got to get that fixed. Um, the uh, uh, the, 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 for our deepest, you know, our deepest religious instincts, um, you know, mm-hmm. are being sort of exploited uh, in, in a way that is, frankly, dysfunctional. Well, mm. and that's what's so interesting because I was I was part of a cult um, for about what two cult? years. Yeah, it was like, oh my god, the, go on, tell me. Yeah, it was um, this, this guy named his name was uh, he, he led the Shepherd's Chapel. Um, he was this old military guy and he would be on television. If you look him up, I don't know if he's the guy's still alive yet, still alive. But I mean, wow. the, the interesting thing about cultish thought is you, you know, there's something about psych, um, when Carl Jung talk about anecdotes, you know, these, these, it, you, you have this history with you. So it's like, you truly believe that you've got thousands of years of validation. So you have a right to get in, like, you know, get engaged with this stuff. And I think there is, I wonder if there's a real correlation because a lot of college students, even that they tell me they're, you know, they're former Catholic, they're former uh, Episcopal, kind of leaving that behind. So what do you hold on to? If there's a religious gene, I don't, I don't know if there is or isn't, but you know, it, it would make sense why this would just kind of suck the, that particular passion 
put a little bit of Christianity right over here. So I still kind of hold on to it or mm -hmm. whatever, or spiritualism. And that gives me the full justification that you're truly a threat. And I, I, it's not just my own immediate instincts that are saying that it's, Hey, you're, you're denying thousands of years of history. How dare you look at you and your, you know, worldly ways. And, you know, you're just, uh, all, you know, is you've only been on this world for 40 years or something, but I've, I've got thousands of years of history on my side and, you know, yeah. and, People denied racism back in the 60s, and you're just like that white person that, um, excuse me, yeah, the, the, this is what I usually get. Well, you don't want to be the wrong side of history, and people were uncomfortable with racism back in the 60s, and you just sound like the uncomfortable white racist in the 1960s as much as you've mm -hmm. got some, you know, questions about, you know, um, intersectionality and whatnot. So it's the same type of kind of using history, but somewhat using, you know, cherry picking and whatnot, but having that passion, the religious fervor. Yeah. It's taking over purpose. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's one of the things I, I think one of my questions, like going back to therapy, I mean, how can you, how can you argue with that? I, you know, because if this yeah. person truly believes, I think one of my questions, like say for example, trauma, like 10 mm -hmm. years ago, when I first started becoming a therapist, I mean, or, or 14 years ago, I'm getting old. Um, mm -hmm. That word was only given to people that were in, you know, through war. They, they maybe they've been through war, maybe they experienced severe abuse or neglect. And that word has totally reached, yeah. completely been, uh, uh, redefined to mean really just anything that makes me feel uncomfortable. Uh, and if I believe that I'm being traumatized and then I have the religious fervor right here on the, on the background, or excuse me, that's undergirding my belief. And it's going to affect my interpretation with the person who's maybe asking me these quote, uncomfortable questions. You've got a lot of different, I like how you were the, use the word scheme is going on. Mm -hmm. It's not just reactivity. It's a long history. I mean, how do you, I could see why you wanted to say about your book. I, I feel disheartened, I guess, you're, you know, but I, I suppose, I mean, do you have any, um, how do you reason with somebody who honestly believes this? And do you have any good stories, uh, you know, on, uh, you know, when stress may be a better word? I mean, does it, that make sense? I mean, what, what's your, yeah, I know that's a, kind of a big question there, but yeah. I'll let you. Uh, um, well, <laughs> I'm not really sure where to, where to begin with that. Um, but but yeah. I, I think one way to begin is what I feel like we've learned. Uh, and I mean by uh, me uh, and height um, since we wrote uh, Coddling. I've been doing a series for my, I have a blog now called The Eternally Radical Idea. And that's my way of describing free speech. That essentially, just to be very clear, free speech is neither a conservative nor a liberal idea. It is always a radical idea in every society. Why? Because people always oppose it <laughs> mm -hmm. all over the spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that, that has really affected my thought um, that I read was Martin Gurry's book, Revolt of the Public. Um, now, and, and the funny thing is, I, I, I hesitate to recommend this to my fellow liberals because it, it's it, sometimes it can be very accurate acid penned, you know, in its approach to mm -hmm. Obama and all this kind of stuff. But the central insight that essentially we entered a very weird period um, of hyper communication um, that we're not used to. And it's mm -hmm. having all of these extremely disruptive effects. And that's something we, we obviously like we, we pin a lot of coddling in the American mind on the explosion of social media. But uh, revolt of the public is more or less saying we're not going far enough. You can see this in the Arab Spring. You can see this in popular uh, populist movements in Europe. You can see it certainly in the presidency of Donald Trump, for example. Um, and that essentially it feels like we're at some kind of 
especially disruptive period where it, you know, like I talk about the sunlight being the best disinfectant is this idea from Louis Brandeis that essentially letting, uh, uh, having transparency means that evils can be corrected is essentially what it means. But when you have something, uh, you know, exposed to the full might of the sun, everything burns away. And I think that with this many people looking at these many issues all at the same time, it brings this kind of sense of anarchy. And even as, as Gary points out, nihilism, essentially this is a very, it's very hard to know what to believe. Uh, we don't have sources that we really trust. A lot of the institutions that we would like to look to um, th 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 sometimes have been unfairly dismissed. But then, then you see things like, you know, like higher education, the stuff that I deal with all the time. You know, when you try to explain to someone who's conservative that it's like, oh, well, you know, like the this is all of uh, all of this research points to this, you know, one left leaning belief being true. But then you see people who, you know, publish articles that actually take the contrary point of view you know, being fired or having papers uh, um, uh, withdrawn. You see death threats against, uh, there was literally death threats against an article um, written by Bruce Gilley, you know, a couple of years ago, and it got withdrawn in the face of death threats, for goodness sakes. Um, as far as things that were damaging to our sort of institutional um, belief, the, the uh, when those doctors came out last year and said that, uh, you know, you, uh, COVID is a real problem, but if you go to protests, uh, they're tightly packed together, but they're for Black Lives Matter, that's okay. I, looking right. at that, it's like, that is devastating to the trust of the public on this kind of stuff. So I think we're in a really sort of anarchical, weird period where I'm not totally sure uh, what the way out is at the moment. Um, I do think that we need some institutions that all Americans can trust. And unfortunately, a lot of the ones that we usually turn to um, have let us down to a degree. Mm. But at the same time, we're also asking for unreasonable levels of certainty and unreasonable levels for, for like, as Gary also points out, we're asking for the government to do things that are well beyond the, possi the possibility of government to even do. So mm. I, th I think we're in a weirdly difficult period and I'm not totally sure what the way out is yet. So very, very positive news. <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah. And that, <laughs> that does bring it around to where I wanted to close out. And I'm sure you have a lot of, um, you know, you probably end a lot of podcasts with this question. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't know, Peter, if you wanted to chime in with anything else after this, but I, I'll just ask yeah. my last question, which was, sure. you know, you, you do mention there's a line in the book that says the arc of history bends toward progress on most measures of health, prosperity, and freedom. Yep. But if we can understand the six explanatory threads, which we don't get into, got to buy the book to understand that. Um, but anyway, so six explanatory threads, and free ourselves from the three great untruths, it may bend a little faster. Yeah, I, I really liked that. Thank you. Uh, but how are we doing on 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 this? And and do you feel optimistic? I know you 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 already said a little bit about going back and forth between pessimism and optimism. But mm. where are you right now? And what do you see years ahead? I am temperamentally an optimist um, who I feel like lives in a pessimistic world in a lot of different ways. <laughs> um, as far as things that can be done. Um, now, one thing that I'm afraid of is that if we take too many top-down solutions to the social media issue, we're not going to allow people to adapt culturally to this unparalleled level of communication. And I see it in my own interactions on, on, on Twitter is that, you know, I have people that I follow who re argue reasonably, who give, you know, recommend great books and, you know, have mostly yeah. a pretty pleasant life on uh, Twitter, which I know can be a horror show, but mostly isn't for right. me. Facebook, same, same way, except for that one interaction where I, you know, I, I got 
told that um, I was being a bad ally, you know, like for the most part, like <laughs> the, the norms start to generate themselves. Um, so I, th I think there's, I think we can adapt to some of these and I hope that we don't take a two, when I think to agree we are already taking some two aggressive top-down uh, 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 approaches to this. I do think we're going to need some new institutions. I do think that college is too expensive. I think it's too, um, I don't think you get enough bang for your buck. Um, and I think that we need alternatives, uh, like, uh, and really high quality. I, I've been talking about there being, you know, low, uh, um, low cost, high rigor institutions need to uh, need to crop up that could actually be as high level as some of the Ivy League. But we're also kidding ourselves mm -hmm. if we think that Harvard's not going to matter in 50 years or MIT is not going to matter in 50 years. They absolutely are. So we have to try to figure out ways to reform them. I do think that one of the suggestions that we had in the book that I still feel very strongly about um, is gap year. Uh, that was that was a surprise to us. Is essentially if 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 you imagine like the best of all worlds from like a hundred years ago, one thing we'd probably actually hope for is that people got to stay kids a little longer. You know that that, that essentially childhood could be a little longer. It could be a little a little less jagged. You know um, that it could be you get to enjoy your youth a little bit more. And I think we we're living in that positive world, but it has a really negative side effect. If you have people coming into higher education who still have the expectations um, of not being offended, of not being challenged, of uh, the world sort of conforming to um, their own sensitivities, um, that's, that can potentially be harmful, but also ones who have no real experience with autonomy, with independence, with independent thinking. So one of the things that we came to somewhat as a surprise for us was the idea that some kind of productive year uh, that isn't about education between, um, uh, well, not education in the traditional sense, between K through 12 and college. And, and for me, like, you know, like if you're from New England, you know, you working a job in Arizona for a year would be amazing. Like you, you would come in with a whole totally different perspective about that. Um, so gap year is one of those things that, that I feel really positive about. Uh, we also talked about free play a lot in the book. And the last edition, the eighth edition of Catching Up With Coddling that I did on my blog was about one of the really positive developments is that there's an organization called Let Grow that has been successful in getting what's called free range children uh, legislation passed. That um, And the emphasis on unstructured play, unstru unstructured free time um, for children it, it is getting more attention. Um, but, and I, and I do think that maybe, I think there's a little bit of hope, um, that the, uh, uh, that the political temperature could be lowered a little bit this year. Um, but that might be a foolish thing to hope. I hope that, that the, that once, um, enough people are inoculated, uh, against, mm -hmm. um, against COVID, there will be people stepping, because I think part of the problem that we've been seeing this year with the sort of hot, hot, hot moral, moralistic uh, fervor is that people became their Twitter avatars. They became their mm -hmm. Facebook avatars. Um, and that is a much more certain, much more moralistic, much more uh, demanding person than than the person you would meet if you had face-to-face -face interaction. Right. I think that some of uh, a return to face-to-face -face interaction will uh, create a possibility of greater appreciation for what we have, you know, talk across lines of difference. That's my, that, that's my hope. I think that, I think that the potential for the post COVID world, um, could look, uh, there could be some real progress and maybe we start to have the cultural norms that help us deal with this massive flow of information. Mm -hmm. 
that's good. That's well, really that good. was that was really helpful. Yeah. Um, no, no, Peter, I, I don't know. Yeah, if you I, mean, have I, I, I want to really respect your time. We try to keep it yeah. within the hour. I know you're a very busy man. I mean, yes. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, but I don't talk too much. So I yeah, know. No, no, I really, I, I'm sure I have like. Uh, I mean, I I do kind of wonder if colleges are in a sense giving into you know, the students demands way in a sense, and, and, <laughs> you know, I mean, when I was, eight, I think I, I don't, when, when we're, I mean, who's not a cocky 18 year old, you know, I mean, I was, we all were right. I oh, mean, yeah. what is it? I mean, it seems oh, like there's something that schools or universities are, that are doing that are just reinforcing this behavior. You know, it's like, and I wonder until that's actually addressed, you're always going to have the cocky 18 year old that comes on your com campus. It doesn't matter if you change schools or not. It's just more like if you, you know, kind of like basic behavioralism 101. Like if I reinforce yeah. this bad behavior, you're going to keep doing it. If I don't, you're not going to do it. I mean, you know, very basic, which yeah, is actually goes to goes well with CBT very well. So, I mean, you know, if you want to go to school here, that's fine, but we're not having safe spaces, but it's only $12,000 a year. You're only paying for the, you know, I mean, I, I, I guess there's, there's a sense of, yeah. Anyway, I mean, go ahead. We, we yeah. need to, yeah. And I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. And I see this a lot. There, there was um mm -hmm. at Harvard, Ronald Sullivan um, was a uh, was a uh, professor in, in charge of an educational dorm, and he was uh, you know sort of pushed out after it became known that he was uh, at least, and only for a brief time on the team of lawyers defending Harvey Weinstein. Oh. And one of the things that frustrated me about that was um, I would have felt a little bit like more accepting of of of, uh, of that uh, push if Harvard had made any serious effort. To publicly say, uh, I know you guys are, and, and you don't have to add this part, but it also is true. I know you guys are pretty young, <laughs> um, but uh, among lawyers, we don't just think it's okay to defend odious people. We think it's actually, in many cases, commendable. Um, mm -hmm. We think that public defenders are are, are doing a very noble job um, it, defending people that we think might be guilty and being willing to take that on is something that we think is commendable. And that should have been explained to students, mm -hmm. but it never was. Just mm -hmm. like the case you brought up at University of Illinois, um, Chicago. No, wait, Illinois, uh, UIC, University of uh, Illinois Champaign-Urbana. Um, Champaign. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, right. This was a case where a professor, and this is almost beyond parody, uh, he, it, was in a, uh, it was a fact pattern in a law school, um, and it was about um, discrimination. And he talks about, uh, and, and this is a big area of law, a big important area of law. And in the scenario, rather than putting racial epithets as part of the scenario that you're, it's called a you know fact pattern that you're supposed to think through as a lawyer, um, he wrote N word, uh, sorry, N dot, 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 and B dot, 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 and then put in parentheses um, th that that in this scenario, this person used um, uh, these derogatory terms, one for a black person, one for a woman. And, and, you, and you know what these words are, but he censored them and he right. has been you know kicked out of his class. Like he, he they threw the book at this guy because it kind of made students sort of think about something negative. I'm not I'm not totally clear on that, but they yeah. never actually said something like, guys, like like word if you're going to be a lawyer. You're going to be doing some deadly serious stuff. You are going to see some things that will curl your toes and you are expected to hold yourself together and still be able to practice law. 
Um, and they never gave that talk. They never actually took, had the courage to tell their students, like, listen, this is okay. Um, and and really, like, if you want to be actualized lawyer in the real world, you can't let this stuff uh, completely derail you. And also, frankly, when you don't have those, you don't you don't uncover the fact that sometimes, and and this is something that you I've learned because I've been I've been working at Fire for almost twenty years now. Sometimes it really is a couple of students don't like that professor um, and they think they found an excuse, you know, you know, to get rid of them. Um, and you have to be able to talk back to your students and not let them kind of run, run, run the norms of campus. And so many campuses are just doing whatever the, whatever the customer asks for. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Well, and it's it, until that changes and until the, I think the cost too, I mean, they use that as kind of an emotional oh. blackmail technique. Hey, I'm, I am spending $75,000 a year for my daughter to go there. She's yeah. uncomfortable. You're making her be uncomfortable. And you know, maybe we, <laughs> anyway, so um, yeah, it's, did, uh, did we not learn anything from evergreen? I mean, that boy, the disaster mm. there, I don't, I don't understand why it's just perpetuating instead of, instead of correcting. Yeah. And, Anyways, um, well, we've really appreciated yeah. your time. Yeah. I mean, and, like uh, I said, we could, we could, I could keep talking for thirty, but I'm gonna, I want to respect your time. So, <laughs> oh, th thank you. Yeah, no, I, I have to get back. I, I yeah. was um, recently invited to do that clubhouse thing, um, and oh, yeah. my joke is my job is to pretend to be a extrovert. <laughs> and, and it was one of these things where it's like, oh God, you have no idea how exhausting I would find like a podcast that's on all day. It just sounds yeah. like a nightmare to oh, me. Gosh. Well, but, yeah. but this has been lovely. Yeah. Um, and I, I really enjoyed chatting with you both. Uh, and you're, yeah. and you're both, are you both in Boston or? No, I'm in uh, Boston and, and Brad's in, uh, you want to tell him where? Central California. So, yeah. um, you know where Fresno is? <laughs> yeah, sure. Oh, uh, yeah, right Stanford. Oh, okay. My, my awesome. brother used to live in Long Beach, um, and I, I went to Stanford. I lived in San Francisco, so I I, I used to I, for a long time. I, I continued to think of myself as a Californian. Awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, we love. We, we yeah. Our times are funny because like when he's getting yeah. up, I'm like, it's already. Hey, man, it's already lunchtime. Come on, get yeah. you know. <laughs> What's wrong? Yeah. With yeah. It's we love being in totally, two totally different parts of the country at the same time. You know. Yeah. It's we have a we 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 love talking. So thank you so much, uh, Greg. So I, I just do. real quickly, oh, I sure. did want to say you've got, um, we can find you at Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you did mention Twitter, any any social media. Uh, well, most uh, importantly, it's uh, thefire.org. Um, thefire and that's also at thefire.org is our Twitter handle, um, thefire.org. That's where we do our, uh, that's my organization. We defend free speech, due process, academic freedom on campus, but increasingly we're taking on the role of educating people about the deep and profound philosophy around things like, you know, um, uh, free freedom of speech, due process, right. freedom of inquiry, because it's just not taught very well in our opinion. I also have a blog called The Eternally Radical Idea, which is on the yep. FIRE website. Uh, and I'm at G Lukianoff um, on Twitter, which is, uh, you know, G-L-U-K-I-A. N O F F M. Well, in five years, your name. In five years, we may all be on Gab instead because we all be. Yeah. Or maybe. Yeah. Well. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, we really appreciate your time. Absolutely. All right. Thanks. Take care. Bye.